Hello and welcome to the Sports Technology Podcast. In this, our 11th episode, we speak with a fellow research student and avid rugby fan, James Jones, about the current Rugby World Cup in New Zealand. He tells us about some of the technologies used in training and on game day, including robots, apparel, and automated motion tracking systems. For more information, you can check out some of his writings on the Sports Tech Review, linked from our website, sportstechnologypodcast.com. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Sports Tech Pod. Enjoy! Okay, this is the Sports Technology Podcast. My name's Henry, and Mike is here as well. Hello, everyone. And with us today in the studio, we have James Jones. Hi there. James is one of our colleagues at the Sports Technology Institute. Um, he's doing a PhD as well, and he's Welsh and a rugby fanatic. So we thought it'd be cool. It's, it's um, Rugby World Cup time right now, so Mike and I know very little about the sport. So we have our, our resident expert, so to say, to give us uh, his view on some of the technologies that they're using and also just the the game from like a, a fan's perspective. So do you want to start off by giving us just like a, a brief description of rugby for, for, the un, for the uninitiated? Those of you who are not 100% sure of what rugby union is or, or how it works, it's basically a game of 15 aside where the idea is to score more points than the opposition. Um, you're only allowed to pass the ball backwards between players, although kicks can be made forwards at the pitch. You score by getting the ball touched down behind the opposition goal line which will entitle you to five points, and this is referred to as a try. Uh, following on from this, you have an attempt to kick a goal, very similar to the American football, which will entitle you to two points if successful. And there are also a number of opportunities throughout the game if the uh, opposing team is penalised for you to have a kick a goal, which will entitle you to three points. So can you tell us a little bit about the Rugby World Cup and how that's all working now? Yeah, uh, the World Cup started uh, last week, and it's a tournament between international teams that happens once every four years. Uh, this World Cup has 20 teams involved in it, and they've basically been working towards the uh, tournament for the past two or three years, and it's all coming to a head this, week, this autumn in New Zealand over a seven-week period. And they usually play games how many, how many, like one game every week or one game every five days? So um, the game lasts for approximately 80 minutes, split into two halves of 40 minutes, uh, and the more prominent teams will play once a week. The, the lower-ranked teams sometimes have to play a midweek game just to squeeze in all of the fixtures into the time period. Okay, so then going along with that, since these guys have been training basically what, since the end of May or something like that, they've and now are training really hard for this, this World Cup that's going to go on for a month and a half or so. What are some of the new training regimes or methods that you've kind of come across in, in you following this board and writing up for um, the Sports Tech Review? This is an unusual international meet in the fact that the players have been together since the end of last season, which was in May, so they've had a good six months nearly together, where normally you'd be together as an international team for one or two weeks before your first game. Is this, is this just because of where the, where the World Cup falls this year, or is, that, is it always...? Uh, the World Cup is always, always at this time of the year. Obviously, in New Zealand, it's a different season to, it, to what it is here. Right, their, yeah. their, their main season has just pretty much ended, whereas in the Northern Hemisphere, our season ended in May. If the World Cup was in the Northern Hemisphere, it would still be at this time of year. So, in that case, the Northern, teams do, Northern Hemisphere teams do have an advantage in mm. terms that they've been able to generate more of a club atmosphere, helps with team bonding and things. And obviously, over a prolonged period of time, you can have more intense and increased training sessions that help you work together as a team. A good example is the uh, French team who have just developed a new scrummage machine 
which is a scrum is basically uh, where eight players from each side sort of push against each other and try and win the ball for your for the rest of your players on your team to attack. And the scrum, the French scrum machine is being designed upon uh, an aeroplane simulator, which has got a number of actuators that push against the players, and it also can twist, try and emulate an opposition scrum. So some. It's it's like so the scrum they basically it's two sides they they smash into each other and they they try and get the ball from from beneath that and the the scrum machine I guess it it just provides a posing team that's that's consistent and uh, modifiable I suppose like different different behaviors and such yeah yeah the um in training uh, it's possible to to practice the scrum against another set of eight players but. This can, you know, wear on the players and give increased injury risk. Where you can also control what the opposition is doing, so you can model an opposition scrum to be as you expect them to perform in the game. Whereas your reserve scrum necessarily may not be able to do that. So, like, like the French might try and emulate uh, a, English an English an English scrum. Yeah, that's exactly right. Typical. So they, they their coaches would know the type of scrummaging technique that. The opposition is going to provide whether they push or take the hit, or you know twist in from the side or try and collapse the scrum, and they can use this machine to try and model what the anticipated result is going to be, which will in turn help them get used to to playing against that tactic. Um, the only downside is it can be quite intensive, so you're only really allowed to use it once or twice a week hmm. due to the increased risk of injury. Yeah, so I I I think it might have been you who was saying that that. Rugby is a, a super demanding sport physically, and that, like more so than more so than football or, or something. So, like that's that's why the games are so far spaced out, and that's why the the, the event takes so long. It's, it's quite a lot of training that goes in, I guess, for conditioning. Yeah. So, if you take, for example, the football world cup or soccer world cup, <coughs> they have games maybe two games a week, so one on a weekend and one say on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, and their season is like that. If you're a top end football team, you will play twice a week from. August to May, whereas you can't really do that in rugby because it you is need, need time so, to recover. Yeah, yeah the, the, some of the hits that you see, <laughs> but without without pads, this is the other the other big thing I mean, compared to football, or American football. Like you've kind of been following rugby pretty much your entire life. Do you see any like specific teams that really adopt technology, or just a general trend overall in for all the teams kind of at the top level having to adopt kind of more scientific? approaches to their training. Uh, rugby is quite unique in terms of it's not that old as a professional sport. It only turned professional in the mid-90s. So, 1990s? Yeah. Huh. So I think it was 1994, maybe 1995, um, where all of the top-tier teams adopted professionalism. Um, and since then, the, the increased level and awareness of technology has gone through the roof. It has taken some top-tier teams a little longer to catch up in terms of professionalism and the culture they've had. For example, I know that in 2003, when England won the World Cup, their coach, Clive Woodward, was pushing the boundaries of technology. And since then, everyone has caught up. And now, Do you have any examples? Uh, I know in 2003, they uh, pioneered the... Or just slightly before 2003, the English rugby team pioneered the, the skin-tight shirt, hmm. uh, which may seem simple now, but before, you, you, you could watch a game and the shirts were all baggy and the players would tackle and hold on and see them pulling back on the shirt, which is obviously a disadvantage if you want to escape your marker so a skin tight shirt can't be pulled grab and it's harder to grab onto when you're being tackled and same with moisture properties as well where the some of the older shirts made of cotton so you're just going to kind of get a lot of sweat build up over a game and it's just 
kind of heavier and harder to play. Yeah, that's right. It, it's also, most of the content's a good one. If you think as well, if it's raining or the ground is wet, there's a lot of contact with the ground and you'll absorb all of that water and your shit will just get heavier and heavier. And it obviously saps your energy to run around with increased weight. One one thing that's kind of come to to, to my attention recently is some, some stuff I've done is, is kind of the, like, the camera tracking and, and it's something that gets used in in football occasionally but um i've i've seen rugby applications as well yeah um, i've written a few blogs um on articles uh, things such as spin sight and cyberhawk um the scottish rugby union use them i think spin sight's been taken on by the uh, other home nations and maybe the french teams as well and i know that the new zealand uh, rugby union have their own system that they're not allowed to talk about because <laughs> they don't want anyone to catch up and apparently they've developed their own tracking system for in-game situations which can provide all sorts of feedback to... So who is that tracking then? Is it tracking the ball or is it tracking the players? Uh, I think mainly the players are being tracked and they have, they've developed a computer software that can point out certain situations and scenarios in the game. So something like spacing, like how far each guy is between, between another opponent or another teammate? Yeah, things like spacing, how far they've run in a game, angles of running so if you imagine that you're passing it along the line of players and another player cuts in at a certain angle and it's an optimum angle to break through the defensive line are there set plays like in in american football there's like it's pretty like stop and go so there's the offense runs a set play every 30 seconds whatever but in rugby like much like football or soccer it's more fluid right out of the play system set up you don't notice it so much, but there are a lot of set plays taking place. Um, every time there's a set piece, which would be uh, a scrum or a line-up, which is what happens when the ball goes out of play on the sideline, uh, which is basically the ball being thrown back into play, the, there's a stoppage in play, and the, the attacking team or defensive team has a chance to set up a set move. So that's when they like put a guy on their shoulders and it goes out like happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So uh, that's, that's the lineup. So they'd, they'd be two lines of anywhere between three and eight people, and they, one of the players throws the ball in, and then it's you've got to try and win it back and pass it back to your backs or the attacking players. And um, when that's being set up, they, there could be a number of set plays, depending on a number of situations on the outcome that will come off that. And so the 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 tracking systems like the spin. Spin sight, and then the 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 other one you mentioned, Cyberhawk. Cyberhawk, yeah. So that, they they use those in games to get like real time feedback. Uh, I know that the Scottish Rugby Union have been using uh, Spin sight a lot in games. Uh, I'm not sure about Cyberhawk. Cyberhawk is basically just a sort of a remote control helicopter with a camera on it. That they I know they only use that in training. I think so. They just hover above the the in game situation, and it gives you. a literally a bird's eye view of what's happening. Uh, spin sight basically takes in, it measures the dimensions of the pitch and it knows where the players are on the pitch. So who's really driving this? Are the players interested in this technology or are like, they receptive to this kind of new angle on the game or is it more the coaches like just feeding it down to, okay, this is what we've seen, this is what you're going to do? That is all dependent on the player really. Um, I know that there is what about some, like the is it like a traditionally more technology driven sport or is it kind of less receptive to change? Yeah, like I say, because it's not been professional for that long, all of this change has happened really quickly in the past 15, 20 years. I know that before each game the teams have a meeting and the video analyst will provide probably about twenty minutes worth of video on the opposition and he would make more clips available if players want them. Uh, some players 
would rather not watch videos. Some players love that sort of thing. So it really depends on the generation of the player. I think as players are coming through the ranks of age grade rugby, so as you're getting older, you get more used to this technology. So like in American football, you have like the Madden generation, people like playing <laughs> video games and like they expect a certain level of technology in their yeah, sport. Yeah, I, I think so, yeah. So if, you, if you're 18 now coming into the game, you're probably going to be immersed in all the, all the analysis and things like that. Whereas if you're towards the end of your career, you can probably remember when you just turned up on a Saturday and played and then went home and came back the next week. Do you see, as a, as a spectator, do you see the commentators talking about that kind of angle, like adopting some of these things they may have seen um, firsthand with, okay, this guy was spacing here because they've kind of scouted this team a little bit. They don't, they don't necessarily pick up on the fact that they've scouted the team, but they know the commentators often pick up when you're watching it on TV, they go to a replay and have a freeze frame and explain what's going on and saying that he's spotted that he's up against a slower player or he's cutting back in on his run. And they, or the players would have, they would have learned all of that in the week yeah. leading up to the game. As a training tool then for, for strategy, I guess it works well when you're looking at games, but do they use it at all for, like, cause you said you could track player motion, like how fast and how far you run and, and things like that. Do they, do they use that bit at all to look at their own team? Yeah, I know that the Under Armour have uh, developed a t-shirt that you can wear and the Welsh Rugby Union have tried it out on their players and they only wear it in training at the moment that monitors sort of heart rate and performance. And I guess that's more, you can use it as an injury pre- prevention tool. So hmm. that if the coaches can see that you're running at full pace or you, you've taken a lot of hits that day, they may say, well, go and do something else because we don't want to risk you to getting hurt more. Talking okay. about that, is it a big problem with concussions and kind of guys getting a lot of head injuries? That's a lot of, that's a big talk. Topic. I mean, it looks when yeah, I think when when we watch rugby, it like the hits that they're doing and then the scrum and, and like without pads, that looks quite violent. Yeah, I mean, it, it it's they're they're getting hit as hard, if not harder, than than NFL players, but they're not wearing much. I, I'm a, I'm also a fan of NFL, and I'm aware of the concussion uh, argument that they're putting forward over there at the moment. And um, and I honestly can't say that I've noticed there being more concussion in rugby. There have been incidences that I remember. It's not it's not as bad as you think it is. I can't explain. I think it's all of the tackles sort of happen below below the neckline or below be below the arm line. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess you can't like in the NFL. I think players get in the habit of maybe using their helmet yeah. as a weapon. So they know there's protected there, so they like, and they're cracking down on it this year, but in the past it's been, um, like a helmet to helmet hit is one of the most traumatic injuries. Are they, are they, are they, what do you mean cracking down? Like, are they, are they so, saying don't, you can't hit, you can't do those hits anymore? Or? Uh, big emphasis on referees enforcing those types of hits. You're penalized in the game and most likely you would either be fined or suspended after oh. the game. Um, and I think generally TV analysts and, Places like Sports Center are de-emphasizing those types of hits. Like in the past, you just see highlight shows of, of the hard people hits. getting <laughs> killed and laid out. But uh, I think they're going less away from that because of some of the long-term effects that have come out. Yeah, I think there's always been an argument that NFL injuries wouldn't be as severe if they weren't protected against them as much as they are. Mm-hmm. So wearing a helmet and wearing loads of pads 
protects you, but it also influ- inflicts damage on the other player as much as it's protecting them. Yeah. I know that in rugby, you're, you're taught to tackle properly, and if you don't tackle properly, you'll get penalised. So what happens. does it mean, tackle properly? So you're not, you have to wrap your arms around the player when you tackle them. Uh, you're not allowed to lead with your shoulder. Can I use yourself as a projector? That's <laughs> you're not allowed to. <laughs> so I've, I've seen American football where a player just launches in head, self head first and just into a player's torso to try and take them down. You're not allowed to do that. You're allowed to jump to tackle someone, but you've got to try and wrap your arms around and hit them legitimately. And obviously, if you hit with your head because you're not protected, you're going to injure yourself. So the players are not so keen to do that. Are there less like blindside hits or opportunities to do blindside because it's kind of always so fluid and everyone's moving in the same direction or is it there, there are cheap shots that go on um, there are, when, when the ball breaks down there's what we call a rep which, which would be players trying to win the ball from the guy on the floor and that can be sometimes hard to referee I think the players are generally very tough and, and they've grown up with the game and I, I think there's, a, there's not the sort of culture that you see in football where people feign an injury and things like that they just get up and get on with the game the players do wear some sort of like headgear, though, right? Yeah, yeah. So going back to the concussion, you could, you can. It's not compulsory, but some players choose to wear a scrum cap. Nothing compared to the helmets you see in the NFL. It's basically a, a padded, uh, a padded hat that goes around your head. It's almost it's, like water polo. They they have kind of. It's, yeah, it's sort of like that. It's more similar to that than it is in American football. I think the water polo one is more to protect your ears, though. Oh yeah. But the the scrum caps in rugby are no more than a centimeter thick, and it's just a pad that would protect your head from you know, a, a sharp impact. Going back to the concussion point, the most likely damage caused by a player running and getting tackled suddenly or hard is probably whiplash. Hmm. Uh, and you get a lot of players who suffer from uh, neck and back injuries more than, than head injuries. And obviously, because it's not that old a professional sport, as people have retired, they may have long-lasting damage that nobody really knows about yet. Yeah, yeah it's hard to NFL. hard to tell. Are they, so, are, such is a stage. the game always played on grass, or is it are there, are there artificial um, fields? It it can be played on artificial fields, but none of the, the major teams in in Europe or elsewhere in the world play on artificial turf. So, uh, obviously, because it's there's a lot of impact with the ground, so yeah, just uh, get torn up. Yeah, you can't really play on artificial turf. Very abrasive. Yeah. yeah, it's usually sort of uh, uh, fake grass, and sort of very heavily sanded. Yeah, I guess if it were because at, at the end when they when they score, they generally dive on the grass and kind of roll forward or yeah. slide forward. You couldn't do that. The victory celebrations take a, take a hard hit there. Saying that, the some conditions you encounter in the world, so for example in Africa, is very dry and very hard pitches where you probably wouldn't want to do that anyway. Yeah, that's a good point. So what we've we've spoken about about scrum caps and the shirts. Any other things in in clothing that are any other technologies there that. Are emerging or oh wow. it seems like rugby shirts are almost designed specifically with like different features that different texture features as well right yeah uh, for you can also get uh, shirts depending on your your position or role within the team they have sort of dimples across the chest which help you to grip the ball to your shirt uh, holding so it up holding, the ball holding it up against yourself, yeah. it's harder for it to be ripped away and that pattern can change depending on your role within the team for example you were saying earlier on about the people being lifted up in the lineups, they sometimes have more grip lower up down on the shirt to help the players hold them up. Whereas if you are one of the more attacking players, you'd have it just under your, under your chest so you can 
put the ball against your chest while you're running it helps to keep it in place i had no idea that's cool so what about the actual the ball like is there anything cool going on there like every year for the world cup they come up and henry knows he's, <laughs> he's been working on the, the world cup football like is is there a whole lot of change with the with the rugby ball like or is it similar to nfl where i don't think it's changed a whole lot in the last the last few decades yeah, I think it's probably uh, an in-between the two scenarios there. Uh, Gilbert, who produced the World Cup ball, um, have produced the World Cup ball for the last five tournaments. Uh, Which would be, that, is, that, is that all of them? No, they have been, or well, started in 1987, so there have been a few changes. So the last time when it was in France, Gilbert also produced a new ball uh, that was updated from the time before, and this time the ball has got a heavier bladder it's sort of a slightly different shape with a stronger valve as well. And the idea between behind that is players can what's called a torpedo kick and the mm-hmm. ball hold its line and stay spin more consistently on its axis. A kind of higher angular inertia then. Uh, yeah, I guess so. And I'm, I'm not sure of the effects behind kicking it at goal, but when you see people kicking it out of hand, you can see that it doesn't sort of wobble on its axis as huh. much. Do they change the ball during the game, or is it just one? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure the number, but I know there are probably about eight balls that are used yeah, per game, but they, they just yeah. rotate in and out. Yep. But the idea with this uh, new valve and, and bladder is that the ball will maintain its pressure throughout the game, and it's also helping in sort of having consistency across all the balls that are used, for not just that game, but the whole tournament. Okay. Yeah, I guess if they're swapping them so frequently, they kind of need that so now as a spectator kind of you stayed up till what two in the morning watching the <laughs> games in uh, New Zealand time today is there anything for kind of the novice viewer like Henry and I what what should we look out for like out of the players teams like anyone wearing cool or like using cool technology wearing cool shirts what do you recommend I think all, all of the technology that's on show uh, at this stage is probably going to be that's visible to the to the novice is going to be is going to be the same in terms of what you should look out for in the World Cup, for a beginner, I think the most exciting games are free-flowing running games. So you want to look at the more established nations that are willing to throw the ball about and sort of have some fun with it and try and score lots of points. In the early stages, you mm-hmm. get games where the bigger teams sometimes play against the lesser teams, and that gap is sort of narrowing, but you could get a game where lots and lots of points are scored. So when you mean free-flowing, like you mean lots of passes yeah. or like... Lots of short passes or like fewer like long passes. Like, it's more of a mix. I think if you get a team that's on top or willing to pass the ball around a lot more, because you could keep the game tight and just keep it in sort of amongst your heavier forward players. So kind of the safer approach, maybe. Is yeah, yeah. You you find that there are teams like Georgia and Romania who don't have much flair in the way they play, whereas teams like Fiji or New Zealand like to express themselves and score. What looked like to, what looked to be good tries. Hmm. So if if you're looking for a game that's got that, you want to see you want teams that are are willing to throw the ball around and have some fun with it. You could get a game which some people prefer, which would be say for example Georgia against Romania, which would be just a forward like dominant game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's more of an arm wrestle, yeah. and that will be a very low scoring game. Yeah. Whereas say New Zealand against. More like a defensive struggle? Is it like a more defensive yeah, approach? Yeah, yeah. It's, okay. it's very similar to NFL where you, where you see a game that's yeah, like... Defensive guys and yeah. the running gun guys. So like like recently Chicago have been exponents to that sort of tactic. Yeah. 
So can you give us some examples of like teams that are more like um, more open or like kind of the top level guys that are going to try and score a lot of points? Is the thing you meant named New Zealand yeah, or Fiji yeah. or any other ones? Uh, well, Fiji are not necessarily one of the top teams, but okay. all, all of the Polynesian teams like Fiji, Samoa, and Tonga, they like to play with a bit of flair. Like say, New Zealand are probably one of the best teams, if not the best team. And they're, they're exponents of both types of the game. So if they, if they need to grind out a win, they will. But if they want to try and play expansively, they can also do that. Hmm. Also, uh, Australia and France have got quite exciting players that can score from anywhere on the pitch. And <laughs> obviously Wales as well. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> the whole country. Are there any uh, certain players that uh, people should look out for? Like, who's the best rugby player in the world? I don't even know that. <laughs> Uh, well, the, the best rugby player in the world is Dan Carter, I'd say. Um, he's, he's from? He's from New Zealand. Uh, he plays at fly half, um, which is probably the most important role in, on the on the team. It's, you probably compare it to a quarterback, whereas he's the link between the forward play and the back play. And uh, he, he sort of dictates... So that kind of like the hint between the offense and the defense, so he's kind of the... Like a, oh, no, no, the, the forward player, the sort of the stronger and... Slower players that sort of gain you possession of the ball and they'll be used if you wanted to grind out a certain situation. And the back players are the faster, more uh, expansive players. And he's sort of he's what's called a halfback, which is sort of in between the both. And he's he's also responsible for the kicking, so he can control the game and he can move the opposition around the park and dictate the game. Um, and he's probably the best player in the world at doing that. Okay. Uh, there are a number of players from all from all of the teams that each team have. Each of the top teams has a player that you could be excited to watch out for. So who are the favourites? Who would you think? <coughs> um, top three. So how many? There's what sixteen teams. Twenty. Twenty. Teams. Twenty teams. Yeah. And so it's in pool play right now. Yeah. Pools of four. I'm guessing. Four, four pools of five. And okay. the top two progress to a quarterfinal. So did they each play each other? In the yeah. Pool? Yeah. Okay. So each team plays four games in the pool. So that's why you kind of get these grinded out games. It's like in the soccer world. Yeah. World Cup yes. where you just get teams that. Just try not to lose. Yeah, you, you get try and win. Yeah, you get you get teams that that are like minnows, I suppose, and and their some of their aims are not to lose heavily, yeah. <laughs> um, or or you know, and be in the game with ten minutes to go and have have a chance at getting an upset. Okay. Uh, hmm. In terms of favourites for the competition, I think everyone the world over sort of backing New Zealand, but they've Home not country too. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Advantage a bit. <laughs> they've not traditionally performed well in the World Cup and they've been favourites pretty much every time and have only won it once in 1987. I don't want to use the term choke, but a lot of people have used that. Personally, I think Australia could win it, um, but there are probably one of four teams, maybe France or also, I don't know so much about South Africa, but I'd I say the top... They didn't beat the juggernaut of the US though. <laughs> No, I don't So, so I think I think I think the top three will definitely have New Zealand and Australia in, okay. unless there's an upset along the way. I think when you get to the court final stage, any of the eight teams on their day could be any of the other teams. It, it mm. would be an upset if a team beat New Zealand that wasn't Australia. But I think you can't really discount anyone. And England have shown in the past that this is the sort of competition where all that matters is winning. It doesn't matter on how, how well you play or how good you look. If you win, that's the most important statistic. 
Okay, so what are some upcoming games? And what's the uh, what's the next game you're gonna watch? Uh, you watch all the games. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I'm gonna watch all the games. But what's the 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 one coming closest to to now? Uh, on on Saturday, Ireland are playing Australia, which could be entertaining. I think Australia will win, um, but Ireland they could come close to an upset. Uh, and then on Sunday, Wales are playing Samoa, uh, which is a make or break game for Wales. Really, I think if they lose, they'll be out. Okay. Hmm. And that's quite a good. Well, good luck. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks. I think I've learned quite a bit about rugby yeah, so today. And, uh, and also the technology use, so that's a, that's a good picture. Thank you for that. And that concludes the episode. James will be tweeting about the World Cup at JAJ1987. And you can find more information on our website, sportstechnologypodcast.com. And uh, follow us on Twitter as well, at SportsTechPod. Thanks. Bye.